Hi, this is Liza Casabona, Managing Editor of Retail Dive. What you read on our site is only part of the story. Our reporters and editors are constantly researching, reading, and talking about the retail industry. And we, like most of you, are currently consumed by the seismic changes retailers face. We are also, like many of you, working through disruptions to our usual way of doing business. The Retail Dive team is working from home in multiple states to bring you our analysis of the forces reshaping retail. Here's what we can't stop discussing and debating. Here's where we talk about the news outside of our reporting. Welcome to the back room. Hey, Retail Dive readers, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Back Room. This is Daphne Howland. I'm a reporter at Retail Dive. I'm Ben Unglesby. I'm a reporter at Retail Dive as well. And today we're going to talk about mall owners and mall REITs buying up their own retail tenants. Yeah, you've been writing about this a lot lately, Daphne, because there's been a few of those. You had two in a week you wrote up, didn't you? There were two in a week, plus the rumors going around. So Simon Property Group, which is probably the most financially well-off mall REIT in America, this kind of investment on the part of Simon Property Group and, and its malls goes back to 2016. And if you remember, Teen Apparel Company retailer Aeropostale was in bankruptcy and Simon and a couple of other mall companies got together along with Authentic Brands Group which is a company that sort of has a portfolio of brands and it does actually a really good job. They own the brands of like Marilyn Monroe and Elvis and stuff. But they bought up Aeropostale and saved a bunch of stores and saved a bunch of retail jobs. And those stores seem to be actually doing pretty well. And they've stuck around for the most part, as far as I can tell. All of a sudden, though, fast forward to the past certainly the past couple of weeks, but Ben, you covered it when they also acquired Forever 21 a while back. All of a sudden, they're now owner of Forever 21, Brooks Brothers, Lucky Brand. Am I missing any? Maybe soon. We don't know yet, but possibly J.C. Penning. It's been widely reported that they are a contender for buying J.C. Penning. And a couple publications have put them as sort of the lead bidder right now, but we're still waiting to find out what's going on with them. It's an intriguing proposition, so I had to, of course, write about it. And one professor at Georgetown University who I talked to, uh, he's a finance economist, James Angel, said this is as, yes, it's pretty much as weird as it sounds. It's a two different kinds of businesses, very unusual thing to do. Simon, of course, together with Authentic Brands, is making it seem not very unusual at all because now they've done it a handful of times to the point where Authentic Brands Group and Simon Property Group have formed this 50-50 venture called Spark Group. Someone pointed out to me that Spark, the way they spell it, S-P-A-R-C, is craps spelled backward. And this source was implying that it's a little bit of a crap shoot. But I would say that's a sort of unproven method of making sure that your mall is getting its tenants to stick around is by buying the company, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, it's a very strange animal all around. And when you look at the three different kinds of businesses involved, you have the retailer, which running a retailer is very different from running a mall. So you have the retailer and Simon on the one hand, and then you have Authentic Brands, which does some of the work 
of a retailer, but they're mostly, you know, they own IP, you know, they kind of specialize in marketing and can have some scale on marketing that they can work across their brands. But the whole point is that they don't do operational stuff. They are a brand manager and they outsource operations, uh, whether it's, you know, product making or in the cases where the brands do have stores, they outsource the operations. It's usually lower profile operators than like a Simon. So everyone has their own specialty and it'll be interesting to see how Simon and authentic brands come together and somehow develop a specialty in operating a retailer. That's one of the things that's kind of mysterious to me is how skilled are Simon and authentic brands going to be at running a retailer when Simon is on the very different end of that business? And then, I mean, just the big picture question, what does it mean for a mall operator to also operate a retailer that's one of its own tenants? I mean, it's, I mean and you bring this up in, in the story you did about it. There's some potential conflicts of interest there. And I don't know if they sort of rise to the level of, you know, conflicts of interest that would like land you in court or anything, but definitely right. I think Professor Angel called it a channel conflict. If I'm running a store, an apparel store, and the apparel retailer next to me is owned by the mall, you've got to figure that the landlord and the tenant versus the owner and the tenant are going to have sort of different conversations at their lunch meetings kind of thing. It's a different kind of pillow talk. So there's that. But also, to the extent that David Simon will say that Aeropostal is is profitable and successful. So maybe, you know, he's got that feather in his cap and he's proven it to himself that he can take over a retailer. And I had little kids right around the time this was happening. So I was just familiar enough with Aeropostal as a brand to notice it in our mall. And they definitely spiffed it up. That store got a nice overhaul. It's a fun place to be compared to what it had been before. They're charging super high prices, I think, for a pair of leggings compared to like maybe what an Airy does. I don't know how they're doing that, but even though Lucky Brand and Brooks Brothers are also apparel retailers, they're not the same apparel retailer. Forever 21 has a much different sort of fast pipeline compared to Aeropostale and Brooks Brothers, which is 200 years old and is operating in a segment that can't really sell a suit to a dude anymore. I, I, that, that market is just all but gone away. So I think he's bought himself a different set of problems with each of these retailers than what he's tackled in the past. So we'll see. Yeah. To jump back a little bit, the, the question that always comes to my mind is like, what is a mall owner going to do if the retailer it owns falls on hard times again? And specifically, what do you do about rent? And how do you even make rent decisions with a retailer that you own because usually what happens is you know, the two parties come down to the table and they talk and if the rent is too high the retailer might close their store or they might negotiate a concession depends on the retailer depends on the 
small operator, it depends on their various financial positions and their relationship, but they're always independent entities and they can sit down to the negotiating table. And I just don't know, I can't even imagine how that process works now when the mall owner also owns the retailer. And then also you have that retailer, but the retailer that that mall owner owns is in other malls. And some of those malls might compete. It, it just kind of depends on geography, but it's a really interesting set of issues. Yeah, it gets pretty intricate. I think in some leases, there's a percentage of sales element to the rent. So, you know, I guess you can make it 100% of sales if you're the owner. I don't know if it all flows to Spark Group. It must, you know, the REIT needs its funds, its revenue. Yeah. Because it's, it's not unheard of in the retail world, right? I mean, look at look at Sears. I mean, Eddie Lampert was on like five different sides of the table. Right. Uh, you know, that's someone who, who ran, he ran the company as an executive. He was a landlord to the company through the Saratage spinoff. He's a vendor to the company through Land's End. He's a lender to the company. And he's the majority equity owner. And, you know, he wears all these different hats. Right. I think that's why he's often a defendant <laughs> also. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he's got all kinds of conflicts and pretzel twists um, in there. There's also, like, the complications of how a mall is set up. I mean, I think a lot of anchor stores like JCPenney are not necessarily part of the mall REIT. They might be their own entity and their own ownership. I don't know if Simon, in some cases, might be actually able to take over that land or buildings or both, and that might be a positive. But the other interesting thing about the penny possibility is what it might be used for, which is Amazon. Yeah, I mean, we've heard reports that Simon and Amazon are talking about some former penny stores because yeah and even if simon does end up acquiring penny there's still going to be more than 150 stores that, that closed out of bankruptcy which is another question when you have a mall operator taking over a retailer and and does the calculation about which stores that a retailer closes and not just in bankruptcy but the constant process of store optimization like how does that calculus change when you have someone who operates a retailer and operates the malls that that retailer operates in. To me, it's kind of a black box when you look at it from the outside, but I don't know if you've gotten any, any hints of that. I mean, I think what it's sort of zooming back a little bit, I think it's just an indication of this breakdown in retail that has been going on in the past couple of decades. And I think we've both learned as we've reported on this industry in the past few years that most people like to blame e-commerce because e-commerce pretty much came into its own in the past two decades. So it's quite a coincidence, but at least for, let's see, Aeropostale, Forever 21, Lucky Brand, and Brooks Brothers are all apparel retailers and JCPenney is largely an apparel and home goods retailer. So along with e-commerce is the fact that people are spending the percentage of their household budgets 
has is just like the apparel spending has gone way down. And then when you keep digging, there are probably three to five major kind of cataclysmic changes, sort of macro changes that have forced retail to, to either change or die. And, you know, it's a little bit like the thumb in the dike situation. Like if you plug up this hole, is this other hole going to keep leaking? And a lot depends on what is your understanding of what the problem is here. Is your problem the fact that e-commerce has taken over your segment of retail? Or is your problem that apparel isn't as attractive to the consumer anymore? Or is your problem that the stores are really poorly merchandised? Is your problem specific to this retailer and, and not to these other macro forces? Simon doesn't talk in those terms when he he talks to analysts. And that's a complicated set of issues that are very specific to running a retailer. Right. I mean, to me, one of the questions that kind of presents itself is how good is this venture going to be at running a retailer? Neither of them specializes in retail. And you, know, and you brought up some of the specific issues that these different retailers face, like you know, Brooks Brothers has its own very complicated set of issues. Or the issue might be kind of simple. People aren't buying work clothes as much because of casualization and not because of work from home. But the solution might be complicated and very, you know, very sort of retail specific when you're talking about the, the skill set you need to overcome that. Is the Spark Group as an entity, is it equipped to deal with those issues? I mean, certainly, if you think about the glory days of an apparel brand like Gap or J. Crew or a couple of the apparel brands that were able to sort of get a middle class consumer to spend a decent amount of money on sort of ordinary clothes, everyday clothes. And Les Wexner, too, stores like The Limited back in the day. I think those guys had a real hands-on approach to how those retailers were merchandised. And I don't know that we have that anymore. So maybe the trick would be not that David Simon or um, Jamie Salter of authentic brands group would themselves have a hands-on approach, but if they hired talented merchandisers that maybe haven't gotten the break they should have gotten in the past couple of decades, maybe that would actually turn around apparel more generally too. Maybe, maybe that's what is really needed in that industry. There's another thing about the mall though. I mean, a lot of people sort of a sort of a generally accepted idea that Simon Property Group because they're they're pretty flush with cash, they're in good financial shape. They have the better malls in the country. And for years we've heard it's really the B and C malls, the lesser malls, the more rundown malls that are in trouble. The A malls, Simon's malls, those are protected, but I think we're finding a little bit of cracks in that theory. One of the outliers when we talk about strengths in retail is that the off-price stores that tend to be really strong, like the one retailer that can sell a lot of apparel and that 
is aside from just lately the way Walmart and Target are reporting some really strong comps, but in apparel for years now, it's off price that had the strong store comps, the strong profits, the strong revenues. And off-price retailers aren't in Simon malls or better malls like that. They're in the sort of strip malls that are easy to kind of, you pop in, easy to park, in and out. It's not like a mall that kind of sucks you in and you have to walk all the way through to get to your one little store. I also wonder if in a vacuum, if, if Simon would pursue this strategy. I mean, is, it, is Simon doing this because it wants to, because it, it wants to see if it can find synergy between this line of business and its small business or if it's doing it out of necessity because these retailers are going bankrupt and it doesn't want them to disappear from its malls and it doesn't want its malls to get any unhealthier with with dark spaces. I mean, I got the sense in talking to people that this is a necessity thing. All of these retailers are really faltering. They're filing for bankruptcy, as you know, from being in bankruptcy court all the time, pouring over their filings. And a lot of these guys run, you know, hundreds of stores, which translates to hundreds of tenants for a mall REIT like Simon. But the thing that David Simon will tell you is that this is really an inexpensive way to pick up a retailer. They're, it's a fire sale. He says they get returns within a year. They get the IP and all the inventory and the merchandise really cheap. So it's a really minimal investment for them to pick up a retailer, protect their tenant base, and I guess make money at retail. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a low risk uh, new business for Simon. Unless the part about it being a necessity doesn't actually work, you know? How so? Well, I mean, Aeropostale, if it continues to do well, is a success story. But we don't know that whatever those guys did for that retailer is going to translate anywhere else. So it's, it's a brilliant move if it works. Yeah. They probably can only buy so many retailers if the bankruptcy filings continue as they are. Well, that would be another interesting twist on the retail landscape if you just had sort of a vertically integrated mall. I'm just, I'm just trying, trying to contemplate that. I, I don't really know. When Simon and Authentic Brands Group bought Forever 21, which that that I think actually surprised people, even though there was this precedent with Aeropostale. You covered that. What did you learn about that? Yeah. So it was their second deal. And at the time, we're starting to wonder if it was the beginning of a trend. And the deal itself was fairly straightforward. I think a lot of vendors pushed back because they said the price was too low. But, you know, I, I asked around not long after about why Simon did this, if it was truly strategic, if it was smart, if it, how good they might be at, at running Forever 21. In the case of Forever 21, it was a unique situation in that Forever 21 kind of had an outsized impact on Simon's business. And they had a lot 
of locations at Simon Malls and losing it would have left a lot of holes across Simon's portfolio. So you kind of did get the sense there again that it was done out of necessity. But we're seeing Simon kind of broaden out and get a little more aggressive just lately. It's hard to tell if the, the pace of Simon's acquisitions is picking up or if it's just the pace of retail bankruptcies have has picked up and is forcing Simon to react or is just creating more sort of fire sale opportunities for, for Simon. It'll be interesting to see how extensive this gets with, with Simon and if other mall operators step in. The other thing I kind of looked at was the nature of that ownership and People at the time, anal some analysts uh, and, and other outsiders kind of compared it to a private equity type ownership. And Simon kind of bristled at that. But for one thing, they're kind of filling a role that private equity played a few years ago because four, five, six years ago and further back, it was private equity that would show up in retail chapter 11s as the buyer of a reorganized retailer or the IP. And... Even in bankruptcy, where the prices are low, private equity is by and large backed off. They haven't completely pulled out of the industry, but their acquisitions are much lower than in past years. And traditional retail, I think private equity is just, has maybe been burned a few too many times, and they have pulled back to, some, to a large extent. And so... Is Simon filling a vacuum? Are they buying up these companies because the sector of the economy, you know, that was buying them is not anymore? So that they're all that's left. And there again, that there's the nature of the relationship. I think is another reason why private equity, you know, was sort of a metaphor for for Simon was what Simon was doing. Well, because yeah, I think he was bristling at the idea that there was any downside to being acquired by Simon where in some cases private equity might leverage the assets of a retailer without really, you know, a retailer in bankruptcy is a retailer that has suffered at some level, which means they need to turn around and you need to be willing to put in that, those resources and, and turn it around. Even a retailer with a really strong brand like Brooks Brothers, it's a 200 year old company Everybody's heard of Brooks Brothers, even if they've never worn Brooks Brothers. But even Brooks Brothers is struggling enough to declare bankruptcy. And it's already shown that it can't exist on the fumes of its very strong brand. The other question is, how does this affect the very unique, specific financial instrument that is a REIT? Yeah. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, subscribe, and like our show wherever you get your podcasts.